So today we remember that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, died in agony and in utter abandonment on the cross. And the question that often comes up is why did Jesus have to die? Was that the only way that God's sinful people could be reconciled to him? Wasn't there some other way? And so I'd like to focus uh, on one particular word as we think about this for a few minutes, and that word is propitiation. It's not a word that we use very frequently. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's only used four times in all of Scripture, but every time it's used, it refers to Jesus. We read in 1 John 2.2 that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation means an atoning sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice that's meant to turn away wrath or to pay a debt. And it isn't a word that we use much, if at all, because the thought of such an atoning sacrifice is something that is usually offensive to our post postmodern Western ears. On the one hand, we live in the 21st century, and the very notion of a blood sacrifice to atone for crime seems like it comes from another time. It sounds anachronistic. It sounds barbaric. It sounds inhuman. But then a blood sacrifice to atone for crime is not nearly as inhuman as the crime itself. Sin is the most inhuman thing there could ever be. It it grates against the very fabric of creation. It is something that you and I were never to experience. On the other hand, we value justice. And we believe that people should be made to pay for their crimes. We don't at all value the guilty being given a get-out-of-jail-free card. After all, they might just break the law again. In addition, it seems unjust to us that someone who has no guilt would be punished for the guilt of another. Not fair, we say. Let everyone pay for their own crimes. And it's easy to say that until we realize that you and I are the guilty ones. Scripture doesn't mince words about our sinful condition. In Genesis 6... We read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know that there could be one more adjective or adverb added to that statement to make it sound worse. And right after that, it said that God was grieved that he had created man. Psalm 14 says, they have all turned aside, referring to us. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In Isaiah chapter 1, we hear the voice of the Lord himself speaking, referring to himself when he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. 
they have rebelled against me. And then in Romans 3, we read, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You see, we've all sinned. And the extent of our sinful deeds is curtailed only by God's restraining grace. Something that is so difficult for us to to sit with is the reality that given the opportunity, you and I would be capable of any sin imaginable. And though the sin which we've already committed is not as bad as it could have been by God's grace, it is still deserving of death. The death of the sinner is a certainty, either as a punishment or as a consequence of the sin. We read in the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 18, that the soul who sins shall die. God said this to the people of Judah because it is the just penalty for sin. And in James 1, we read that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God offers this to his people as a warning that the natural course of sin is to kill the sinner. That means that unless someone steps in and intervenes and changes the course of events, either as a result, I'm sorry, those who sin will die, either as the result of God's judgment or as the result of the consequences of sin. God knew that we were lost. He knew that we were separated from him and his holiness by our sin. And he wasn't content to leave it that way. So what did he do? He intervened intervened himself to prevent our self-destruction. Psalm 78 puts it this way, Yet God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He atoned himself for our iniquity. That's an incredible statement, that the God of the universe the most holy and just individual possible, chose to atone himself for the sins of his people. Hence, the need for a propitiation. Since God is infinitely holy, nothing unholy could ever come into his presence and survive. His holiness requires absolute holiness in everything and everyone around him. And since God is the infinitely just judge, he just can't allow sin to go unpunished. So since his will was that we should know him perfectly and be united to him forever through his son Jesus, the only thing he could do was pay our sin debt himself. That was the only way that his divine justice could be satisfied. You and I are finite people, and we tend to think in linear terms. We move from the beginning of a situation to the middle to the end. And we think that the question about how to deal with man's sin began at some point in recorded history, specifically in Genesis chapter 3, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin and created the sin nature, which we all, as their offspring, have inherited. And in a certain sense, that is how the problem of sin came into being. But Genesis 3 did not take God by surprise. 
And that's because God does not view time in a linear fashion. God is present in the present, but he's also present in all times, in all places, everywhere, because he is the master of time. This is roughly how James Boyce, the now deceased senior minister of 10th Presbyterian Church downtown, described it in a sermon about 25 years ago. So go back before Genesis 3, and even go back before Genesis 1, before anything that we can see, anything that we know, existed. All that existed was the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they existed in perfect unity, and they had since eternity past. As the Trinity was contemplating creation and the creation of mankind in particular, the members of the Godhead discussed how to demonstrate the extent of their love to the image bearers that they were about to bring into existence. And they decided that showing faithful, unmerited love to mankind was the way to do it. But how to do it? God would give mankind the potential to disobey his law, to sin, And God knew that man would choose to love themselves rather than to love him. And having fallen into sin, having fallen into rebellion, mankind would need a redeemer, someone to serve as a propitiation for their sin because there was no way that an unjust and wantonly sinful people could be merely forgiven by an infinitely just and holy God. Sin required a sacrifice to atone for it. And that sacrifice needed to be either the sinner or a substitute. Who would that redeemer be? The father asked the son to lay down his life for his people. But doing so would mean that the son would be cut off from the perfect union which he enjoyed with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. It would mean the severing of this perfect union. It would mean being cut off from the perfect love, the perfect comfort, the joy that the Son had always known. And it meant that he would be cut off not just for a matter of hours or for a matter of days, it meant that he would experience the equivalent of an infinity, an eternity in hell. And despite the way that we often characterize hell as just being a really warm place with fire and brimstone and some guy wearing red pajamas with a pointy tail, hell is really infinitely worse than that. It means to be separated from all comfort. It means to be separated from God's presence completely. And the equivalent of an eternity of that experience would be what Jesus would suffer as God's wrath was poured on him, poured out on him. Knowing this, the son said, "I will go. I love them and will not let them perish for their sin. They will be reconciled to us through me." And they will be with us throughout eternity. 
And so in the fullness of time, the second person of the Godhead was made flesh. He was born a baby in Bethlehem. He grew into manhood, living in complete obedience to the Father's will and law all the while. Though the Son was man, he did not sin. He lived in perfect obedience on earth, perfectly submitting to the Father's will, even as he had done in heaven from eternity past. There was not one crime, there was not one sin, not one deed done with mixed motivation for which he could ever be convicted. He is the perfect and the spotless Lamb of God whose blood was shed as a propitiation for all who claim his name. And only the perfect, spotless Lamb of God could be the suitable sacrifice for you and for me and for all those who profess his name throughout history. And he did it all because he loves you. So as we reflect on the events of Good Friday, realize it is because of God's infinite love for us that the Son came to serve us through his suffering and death. And through his death, we are reconciled perfectly and permanently to God. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, these are deep mysteries which we confess, Lord, in our finite understanding. Uh, We can't even begin to scratch uh, beneath the surface of what they mean. But Lord, we ask that we would understand more and more your love for us. We ask, Lord, that we would understand the deep desire in your heart that we would be reconciled and that we would be made perfect through the sacrifice, through the propitiation of the pure and spotless Lamb of God in order that we would enjoy you forever. Lord, give us grace to walk in repentance. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.